What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by Carol Anderson. She's a historian and professor of African-American studies at Emory University. And she spoke to Mark Mardell all about how the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms has meant different things if you are black or white. They trace back the roots of the Second Amendment in the 17th century when it was encoded into law and the enslaved were forbidden from carrying a firearm right up to today and the culture of gun ownership in America. It's a really fascinating conversation and touches on a lot of the big news stories such as the teaching of critical race theory which have sprung up in recent days and we hope you enjoy it. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for the book in the podcast description. But now let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Mark Modell. I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, Carol Anderson. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Good to have you here. Carol's the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University, author of several award-winning bestsellers such as White Rage and One Person, No Vote. Her latest book is The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, the second being the Second Amendment, commonly thought of as the right to bear arms. You say, Carol, it's inherently structurally flawed based on black exclusion and debasement. Why do you say that? It's because I went back and looked at the history, going all the way back to the 17th century, and seeing how the fear of black people, the fear of the enslaved and the fear of free blacks was driving the the architecture of the militia, driving the architecture of of slave patrol laws, driving the architecture of the creation of of slave codes, of, of disarmament, that the enslaved could not bear arms and that free blacks should not be able to have arms. And then seeing how this fear of black people eddied through to the creation of the Second Amendment, which was this fight over who would control the militia. And the militia was there, particularly in the South, to quell slave revolts. And so sitting in the middle of the Bill of Rights, we have this right to control black people, this right to deny black people their rights. Because as I say, you often think of the Second Amendment as just about the right to have guns, but the the militia is right there at the heart and center of it. And that is driven by anti-blackness, as you'd, you'd say. 
Yes, yes. I mean, you saw it at the Virginia Ratification Convention dealing with the Constitution where you have Patrick Henry and George Mason going toe to toe with James Madison, who had drafted the Constitution of the United States and had put the militia, the control of the militia under the federal government. And Patrick Henry and George Mason are absolutely livid, apoplectic about this because they're like, You cannot trust the federal government. It has people from like Pennsylvania and Massachusetts. The North detest slavery. If there's a slave revolt here, we cannot count on them to send the militia down to help us. We will be left defenseless. But I thought the militia was partly formed to fight against us, the English. Well, the the militia were there as well to fight against the, the indigenous people. So you had the northern militia that was dealing with the indigenous people, the southern militia dealing with slave revolts, as well as with the indigenous people. And when it came to fighting the British, I mean, that is part of this incredible narrative, this myth uh, in American history. Because the militia weren't reliable. Sometimes they'd show up. Sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they'd fight. Sometimes they were just like, I'm out of here. They'd run take away. off running. <laughs> right. It drove George Washington crazy. And that is why you have Madison putting control of the militia under the federal government, because it was so unreliable, thinking that a federal structure would create some sense of coherence and some sense of organization and responsibility in this militia. You have this great phrase. You say that the Second Amendment was not hallowed ground, but a bribe. Yes. Um, and I and I use that because right now in America, the Second Amendment has taken on this kind of hallowed stature as this this penultimate definition of citizenship and Americanness. But once we understand that it was part of just like the three fifths clause in the U.S. Constitution, where the South was was banging on about how if we don't get protection for slavery, we're out of here. You can have your own United States. And it was a way to to basically hold the, the idea of the United States hostage. And so the three-fifths clause created additional representation for the South. The fugitive slave clause said that they could go anywhere that they wanted to, to, to hunt down enslaved people who were running to freedom. And the 20-year extension of the Atlantic slave trade, those were all bribes to the South in order to sign on to the Constitution. The Second Amendment is in that same vein. This is so important at the moment, isn't it, when we've got, I think, 22 states taking legislation against critical race theory and, and arguing that race was not inherent in the foundation of the state. Racism was not inherent. It absolutely is. And so what you're seeing is this battle over history, this battle over telling the truth, looking at the documents, looking at what these folks were dealing with at the time and the choices that they made and the choices that they did not make. And what are the implications of that? What they want in this battle over, you know, don't don't. don't teach things that make white students uncomfortable. Um, don't don't teach things that are divisive. Remember, we had a civil war over slavery. If we cannot talk about slavery, then we cannot talk about the civil war where you had a kill rate of, of like 600,000 
killed in this war and not to mention the wounded. And it's that kind of erasure, that kind of elision over the role that racism played in the United States, in its founding, in its institutions, in its laws. If we don't have that understanding, then where we are right now makes no sense. But there's also a feeling on the right that it's not only that it's unpatriotic to talk like this, but it's defeatist because it's saying that white people are inherently racist and there's almost nothing you can do about it. That may be their misinterpretation, but that's what they think. Well, that's what if that's what they think, then they need to rethink that, because part of what is so incredible about the United States is that you had in the midst of the slavery, this aspirational plane. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And where you see these battles in America is to make that aspiration a reality. And that is where people have fought to broaden this democracy, to open up this democracy, is on that aspirational plane. And there have been whites who were on that aspirational plane as well. One of the most fascinating and one of the many fascinating things in the book was an answer to that question that has become almost a cliche. Why didn't the enslaved fight back? Your answer is they often did. Yes. Uh, And see, this is part of when I was growing up, the history that I was taught was that the enslaved did not fight back, that they just accepted their subjugation and that Lincoln freed the slaves. And so when that's the narrative of subjugation, it needed a white man to do it. Yes. Right. And 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 that and that. And so what you get is this kind of sense of, well, why did they take this? Why did they take this? And and it's then the historians who came in and challenged that narrative in the in in the 70s in and in the 80s they they started going through the documents going through the slave narratives and you started seeing these this kind of resistance the revolts that were just sending shockwaves through that white community because they were like these people are, are will kill us. They want to be free. Their quest to be free means that they're willing to die for this freedom. Um, and we've got to stop this. And that's why you see the rise of the slave patrols, the rise of the militias, the rise of, of, of these slave codes that say they cannot have literacy. They cannot they cannot have weapons because these are the articles of of liberation. And it's that push that really sends a powerful signal about the creation of this nation, the creation of, of, of what freedom means to people and how people are willing to die for it. And of course, with the end of the Civil War, with the end of slavery formally, it still didn't end. The violence didn't end. I was interested in particular, I hadn't heard about the... Uh, the incident in Colfax, Louisiana. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. And and to me, that resonates so much when we think about the insurrection that we had here on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol, because here there was an election in in Louisiana. Whites did not like the result of that election. And so they were charging, storming to uh, the, the courthouse building in Colfax, Louisiana, to overthrow that government and install their own leaders. And you had the black militia was called out in order to protect the results of that election, to protect democracy. And the the 
the white mob, a paramilitary group, the, the Ku Klux Klan, they attacked this militia and overwhelmed them and slaughtered them, slaughtered them. They set the, the, the courthouse on fire. The militia uh, was was running out. The black militia men were running out, told to surrender. Those who had surrendered were then executed. You had the the Louisiana, which was just in the middle of a major political battle, was not about to prosecute these men for murder. So the federal government stepped in and charged them with uh, violating the Third Enforcement Act, which was the Anti-White Domestic Terrorism Act. And that case went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in the Cruikshank decision that that the Third Enforcement Act only applied against state actors, not against private actors. And so therefore, the men who had attacked this black militia and slaughtered them, they could not be held on a federal charge. And that just gave carte blanche to the kind of paramilitary uh, white domestic terrorism raining down on the black community. And President Grant apparently said at the time rather woefully, they just want the right to kill Negroes. Yes. I mean, Grant's angst and anguish about the slaughter was was just so palpable. I mean, you saw that. I mean, this was a man, a key general in the Civil War who fought to end slavery, who fought to keep the Union together and knew that enfranchising and, and recognizing the citizenship of the emancipated people was key to this new, new, new democracy that the U.S. was trying to build. And so to have the Supreme Court knock the, the legs out from under that was just devastating for President Grant. And was the Second Amendment built into that argument at all at that time? And so what you see happening here is that we understand you had the black codes that were coming right out of the Civil War where President Johnson had basically provided amnesty to the Confederate leaders who then regain control of their states and started passing legislation to to reinstall slavery by another name. And one of those things was was the labor codes, but the other piece was the disarmament of black people, saying that they cannot they do not have the right to bear arms. And you had African Americans asserting we have second amendment rights. We have the right to bear arms. And 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 as you see in the book, I say no because what the second amendment was really about was the devaluation and the debasement of black people's rights. And so as African Americans are asserting we have the right to bear arms via the second amendment that Second Amendment really was saying, you do not have those rights. And we saw that again powerfully in the 20s. I knew quite a lot about Tulsa. I didn't know about so much about some of the other incidents that you mentioned <sighs> where when black people were managing to get some measure, some measure of political power and economic power, it was knocked back by the Klan and others. Yes. And so that's why I talk about, for instance, Elaine, Arkansas. In Elaine, Arkansas, here you have black sharecroppers who were working an entire year and not getting paid for their labor. And so they decided to organize a union, to, to join a labor union in order to, to, 
to be able to gain the kind of leverage that they needed in order to get paid for their work. Well, and they said, you know, the whites find out they will kill us. And so they had centuries put outside the church where they were organizing and meeting. But whites had heard about it. The white landowners had heard about it and sent a scouting party up to break up and to shoot up that meeting. The sentries saw the car up there. There was an exchange of gunfire and a white man was killed and another white man was wounded. Word got back to the town that blacks had killed whites. And the word came down that this is a black insurgency. These are Bolsheviks because this is right after the, the First World War. You know, these are Bolsheviks and they're out here to kill all of the whites. And so the mob descended on that black community and began the slaughter. As black people are defending themselves against this mob violence, two additional white men are killed. That sends the signal to the governor that this is a a broad insurgency with a plot to kill all of the white people. And so he is able to call in the U.S. Army and they bring machine guns that had been used in France during the war and begin the slaughter of black people. They move from what cane break where black people were hiding in that dense vegetation to cane break, just, just mowing people down. Up to 800 or so were killed in this way, in Elaine, Arkansas, because black people dared to fight for their right to be paid for their labor. And they, because they were armed and, and were fighting in the right for self-defense. And the message was, you don't have those rights. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges, big or small, let's not dress it up life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Why do you think when we've seen all over the world in all sorts of different movements, the use of armed insurrection to resist oppression, to resist resist oppression and, and gain freedom. Uh, I'm trying to use neutral terms, but it's difficult to. But wh- why do you think in the States that didn't happen, that the, there was never a coherent, maybe the Panthers, but never a coherent black movement that was based on the idea of armed rebellion? I mean, I know that sounds like a stretch, but it, it, it is a puzzle to me. Well, you know, and when you think about it, the the... The march, the the insurrection in 1811 in Louisiana, that was an armed insurrection. The Stono Rebellion was an armed insurrection. Denmark VC, Gabriel's Revolt. One of the things that we have to be cognizant of is that in the U.S., African-Americans are not the majority. And so the the thing about an armed insurrection is the depth of state violence and power that is able to come down and just eviscerate, obliterate that kind of revolt. And this is what happened. This is what we saw happen with Gabriel's revolt. This is what we saw happen in 1811. This is what we saw happen with Denmark VC. This is, this is why the, This is part of the reason why the civil rights movement was predicated on a nonviolent strategy. And that dealt with the kind of anti-blackness running through this society that defined black people as dangerous, as violent, as inherently criminal, as a threat. And so it was to, to, to dismantle that narrative to say, look at these middle class black folk, because if you notice, they're always in their Sunday best, these middle class black folk who are getting beaten up by thugs for no other reason than they are trying to ride a bus, than they are trying to, to, to sit at a lunch counter and eat a sandwich. That, so these simple basic things, were part of the the narrative to overcome that narr- that that language about blacks being inherently violent and criminal and and remember at Selma at Selma when we had the Edmund the cataclysm on the Edmund Pettus bridge where the Alabama state patrol and the state police and Jim Clark's forces just mowed down all of those nonviolent black protesters and the cameras are rolling. And Andrew Young talked about how there were some black folks who were like, I'm going to get my gun. I'm tired of this. I'm going to get my gun. And he said, we had to talk them down. We had to say, okay, what kind of gun do you have? Okay. Do you know what they have? Uh, you see the shotguns? Okay. And, and how many do you have? Okay. <laughs> do you know how many guns they have? And, and it was a way of being able to explain the disparity in the use of violence uh, in order to get free. And to bring it right up to date, I mean, where, how do you see state power, state violence now? I mean, we've seen a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement standing up saying the police are inherently racist. Do you think that's true? 
I think that the structure of policing, that that structure of anti-blackness that defines black people as criminal, that defines them as a threat, um, is that that has been infused in policing. I mean, so that's why I start the book with Philando Castile, who was the black man in Minnesota, who was pulled over by the police. And when the police officer asked to see his his ID, Philando Castile, following National Rifle Association guidelines, says, officer, I just want you to know that I have a license to carry weapon with me. I am reaching for my ID as you have requested, because he didn't want to have the police officer see him open up the 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 glove glove compartment. Right. The glove compartment and see a gun there and go, oh, so he's alerting him. But I'm reaching for my ID as you have requested. And the police officer just started shooting, saying, you know, I was afraid. I was afraid. I was afraid. That fear is also what I talk about with Kyle Rittenhouse, who was the young white teenager, 17 year old who crossed state lines with an illegally obtained AR-15 to join part of a policing group uh, because there was a, a protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, because a black man had been shot in the back seven times by police in front of his children because the police were afraid. And Rittenhouse goes to Kenosha, Wisconsin. The police welcome him. This 17-year-old with this AR-15 going, oh, we really appreciate you guys being here. Hey, it's hot out here. You want some water? Um, and then Rittenhouse goes and he guns down three men, killing two of them, wounding a third. As he walks back towards the police with his hands up as if to surrender, the police go right by him. They don't see threat. And juxtapose that to 12-year-old Tamir Rice who was playing alone in a park by himself with a toy gun. Now, granted, the orange tip wasn't on the gun that says, hey, I'm a toy, but Ohio is an open carry state. And and it says, as long as you're not threatening anyone, you're fine. And so he's in a park by himself. He's not threatening anyone. The police roll up and within two seconds, they shoot him down saying he was dangerous. He was a threat. And so it's looking at the language of the police and the actions of the police about who they fear, who they shoot, um, who they define as dangerous, um, who they, they say as being the ones that threaten their lives. That's what Black Lives Matter is dealing with. They would say, or many people on the right would say, that's because it reflects the truth. I remember going to Montana and, and talking to a couple about their guns and they were saying, oh, I just come from inner city Chicago. And they say, that must be really scary. Must be so scary there. And they're the ones who have the problem in Chicago, not us here in Montana. Right. And, and, they're the criminals, in other words. And again, that's that narrative. And begin to think about the imbalance here, because what we're talking about, you know, I've, I've heard about, yeah, but what about Chicago, that black on black crime? We've got two things happening there. 80%, over 80% of blacks are killed by black people. Over 80% of whites are killed by white people. But we don't hear about white on white crime. We don't hear about that as a kind of violent pathology. And the other component of that is what we're talking about is the state violence that rains down on black people. 
We're not talking about the individual violence. We're talking about state violence and the lack of accountability for that state violence. What can be done? I mean, you're not presumably, I at least notice you don't say, get rid of the Second Amendment, even though you castigate its origins and purpose now. And so I really believe that what we need to do is to remove the Second Amendment from its venerated status and treat it the way that we treat the three-fifths clause as something that was born out of a bribe to the slaveholders to deny Black people their humanity. And then we need to have a real conversation, a real evidence-based conversation about the role of guns in American society. And we need to dismantle anti-Blackness. That is that is key. I believe that one of the reasons why we don't see good movement after all of these mass shootings, good movement on gun safety laws, is because of this anti-Blackness. So how many times have we heard we will be left defenseless if we don't have our guns. Jonathan Metzl wrote a book called Dying for Whiteness. And one of the things that he did was he looked at those in Missouri, whites in Missouri who had suffered gun violence in their families. And during their, their sessions, you know, they talked about gun safety laws and they went, they went, no, we can't do that. You know, because all of those people from St. Louis will come down here and try to take our stuff. We will be left defenseless. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, my God, I'm hearing Patrick Henry and George Mason talking about we will be left defenseless unless we can control this militia, unless we have the guns to keep these black people down. And that language of being left defenseless courses through these debates on gun safety laws. And and so we need to 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 understand the power of anti-blackness that then says we are willing to be left vulnerable in our churches, at the grocery store, where we work, where where we where we where we entertain ourselves at the movie theater so that we're not left defenseless. But how do you dismantle what you call anti-blackness because that's from your reading of it and mine, in fact, I mean, it's so inherent in the way the United States was brought up. It's it's been it's doubled down under Trump, hasn't it? I mean, he's he's whipped up that sentiment. Yes, he has, and and this is why there are these current battles over the 1619 Project, which I'm a part of, and over the critical race theory, uh, while you're seeing these laws passed in these states saying you cannot teach this because what we understand is that the way to uh, first begin to dismantle this is with the truth is with actual history so that people are operating from a frame of knowledge about how we got here. I think about it in terms of the Rick Santorum school of history, where he said, well, you know, Europeans came to this empty land and we built it, you know, a, the United States, this, this land was not empty. There were indigenous people here. And the we built it means that only white men built this nation. And this then is what leads to policies about makers and takers, that, that the only people who deserve the resources of this nation are the ones who built it. Therefore, only white men deserve the resources of this nation. That's what a bad history 
does. And so to dismantle anti-blackness, you have to have good history. And good, good history does seem to be being born more into the mainstream, more into popular culture now than it ever was before. Yes, it does. And I'm thankful for that because I think one of the things is that Many Americans had deluded themselves after Barack Obama's election that the United States had crossed the racial Rubicon, you know, that we have overcome, uh, we are free. And then comes the election of Donald Trump, who rode into power on a wave of, of racism and white supremacy. Birtherism, build the wall, Mexicans are rapists and criminals, the Muslim ban, just and and seeing the 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 vitriol the racist vitriol that had just like a, a pandora's box erupted in the united states uh like at charlottesville where you have jews will not replace us with a tiki torch that had many Americans going, what just happened here? You know, the America that I thought that I knew that elected Barack Obama, how could this happen? And so you see this, this search, this hunt for, for knowledge in the broader American public. And this is why you're also seeing this pushback from the Republicans who don't want that knowledge out there. And how does the uh, National Rifle Association, always seen as a very powerful force, how does it fit into this this argument? So the NRA, actually the NRA began in 1871, founded by Union soldiers. So founded by soldiers who fought for the United States of America because they were concerned about the lack of marksmanship that they had witnessed on the battlefield. And so they thought folks need to be trained on how to shoot. And so for so long, the NRA was really about a sporting club, a hunting club, about a, about marksmanship. You start seeing that political evolution in the 60s, like when I um, I start detailing the work to to disarm the Black Panthers with the Mulford Act in California in 1967. Yeah, that's fascinating because the NRA is helping people stop yes. guns being in the hand of hands of black people. Exactly, exactly. And then you have the takeover of the NRA in 1977 by this politicized right wing. Uh, it was basically the coup in Cincinnati at their Cincinnati convention. And this politicized right wing took over the NRA and emphasized the individual right to bear arms as the foundational principle of, of, of American citizenship and then began putting lots of money and power behind politicians who were going to be anti-gun safety laws, who were going to block gun safety laws. How do you get over this divide? I mean, good history, you say, but I mean, it's become so divisive, so party pre, not just culture wars, but divided in terms of parties. Right. And, I, and, I, and I think that part of what we're seeing is that divisiveness is that you're seeing the Republican Party shrink because it is so toxic. It is so virulent in terms of everything that it's against. And this is also why we're seeing these massive voter suppression laws put in place by the Republicans, because it is the 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 aura, the sense that this is a equal divide. It's not an equal divide. In fact, it is a a smaller group 
uh, fighting tooth and nail to hold on to power, to hold on to a white supremacist vision of, of an America where you have uh, a vast rightless labor pool uh, and, and, and all of those resources flow up to a smaller strata of whites who then talk about this great democracy while systematically denying rights to the vast majority of American citizens. And so this is why there are these battles about voting rights right now, because they know that they will be voted out by the vast majority of people who don't want that vision that they are propagating and and cloaking it in the narrative of patriotism, of democracy, and of America. I mean, look at how they came out against the January 6th commission. They don't want that investigated where where you had basically a mob of whites attack the U.S. Capitol to overturn an election. How did you see that fit into your your narrative? Oh, beautifully, uh, particularly into the narrative of white rage, which was my first public facing book, because you had massive voter turnout. In, in the 2020 election and in the 2020, 2021 runoff here in Georgia for the Senate that flipped the Senate. So that massive turnout removed Donald Trump from the presidency and it flipped the Senate. And, and that response of Black people and indigenous people and Asian American Pacific Islanders voting overwhelmingly to to have a democratic government. The response was, we've got to have a wave of policies to remove those people from having that kind of power. We've got to undercut their ability. Because it's seen as illegitimate that they should have power. Absolutely. Absolutely. That the assault on the Capitol, when you think about the ways that it was defined, it was those people in Philadelphia, those people in Detroit, those people in Milwaukee, those people in Atlanta, defining these cities, these cities that have sizable black populations, that the votes coming out of these cities are illegitimate. And if you don't count those votes from those cities, then Donald Trump wins. Now, the Capitol riot was, of course, violent, but I mean, it wasn't a sort of nationwide response. Are you worried that things will get worse before they get better? Yes, I am, because the lies continue to be stoked. And the, and the states like Texas are passing laws that say that you don't need to have a license. You don't need to have any training to be able to, to buy a gun. So it's, it's, it's creating a space where that is stoked in fear, that is stoked in anger, that is stoked in violence. So I, I do worry. Thanks, Carol, for a fascinating, if rather disturbing, conversation. I'm Mar Model, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.